that segues pretty well, actually. This is hell. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. We stream live at 10 a.m. Chicago time three times a week and our po- podcast shortly after at thisishell.com. The world broadcast premiere of all four hours of every week's This Is Hell happens on Saturday mornings from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. On Chicago Sound Experiment, WNUR 89.3 FM, This Is Hell also airs abbreviated versions weekly on Radio Free Moscow in Moscow, Idaho, twice every week on the Chicago South Sides Lumpen Radio, and thrice weekly on the United Kingdom-based online radio outlet, Beware, which you can find at BewareTheRadio.com And we are currently participating in our home station's WNUR's annual phonathon fundraiser The one time every year that we ask you to show your support for WNUR Completely non-commercial and independent radio That has been part of the Northwestern University and Evanston community For generations If you go to WNUR.org right uh, WNUR.org slash donate Right now, you can show your support at each of our donation levels. We would like you to show your our. We would like to show our thanks, sorry, to you with a special gift. Please refer to the descriptions under each tier. Those being contributor, donor, silver, gold, diamond, platinum. When you go to wnur.org/donate, uh, donate at the contributor level at, of ten bucks and get a WNUR sticker. For twenty-five dollars, you can be a donor-level contributor and get a WNUR t-shirt and sticker. You can donate at the silver level of $50 and receive a WNUR tote bag t-shirt and sticker. Then there's the gold level of $70, which gets you a hand-picked limited edition vinyl records, a WNUR beanie, the tote bag, plus the t-shirt and an NUR sticker. There's also the diamond level of $125, which gets you all of that, plus the WNUR hoodie. And finally, there's the platinum level, and with a donation of $250, you get hand-picked limited edition vinyl records, the WNUR hoodie, tote bag, beanie, t-shirt, and sticker, plus... Limited edition WNUR socks. Support completely commercial-free independent college radio now by visiting WNUR.org slash donate. Live from the United States where the law is far too often the crime. This is hell. And a perfect example of the law being a crime is the 1857 U.S. Supreme Court decision in the Dred Scott case, which stated, as today's guest points out, that the framers of the Constitution believed black people had no rights which the white man was bound to respect. Black people, free or enslaved, held a place inferior to that of white people, and all white people were above all black people. That white people were simply better than black people by virtue of being white. That thoroughly dehumanizing and completely legal at the time decision only a few years prior to the Civil War, would be part of the lingering legacy of slavery that still very much continues to this day. Of course, today's white supremacy does not look like the white supremacy of the past, but it can be found in white spaces that dominate our lives today. 
Many critics and analysts have argued that white people and black people often live in two very different worlds. The difference is, however, that while black people must exist within white spaces, which gives social rewards from good jobs to enjoying a night out on the town in the more upscale parts of the city, white people have relatively little contact with black spaces and do not have to navigate them as black people must do in white spaces. Part of the problem is wherever black people go, they're burdened with what our guest calls the iconic ghetto. That iconic ghetto is not whatever the ghetto actually is today or what it ever was in reality, but the image whites have of the ghetto. And since the civil rights movement, more well-off black people carry that image of poor black people as well. Carrying that image while in white spaces, black people must work hard to make certain they comply with their place in that space, never knowing where their color line is drawn in any particular instance. And with that color line often determined by the most marginal of whites, it can lead to the threat to personal safety, as we saw with the case of Ahmad Arbery, for instance. That can turn deadly. And in a few minutes, we will be speaking with sociologist Elijah Anderson, author of Black and White Space, The Enduring Impact of Color in Everyday Life. Elijah is the Sterling Professor of Sociology and of African-American Studies at Yale University. His past books include the classics A Place on the Corner and Streetwise, Race, Class, and Change in an Urban Community, as well as Code of the Street, Decency, Violence, and the Moral Life of the Inner City, and The Cosmopolitan Canopy, Race and Civility, in everyday life. Follow Elijah on Twitter at Elijah Anderson. That's E-L-I-J-A Anderson. I am your Bitter Blind Broke Gaptooth Radio Show live streaming and podcast host. Producing today is Dan Hill. Dan, I haven't seen you for a couple of weeks. Anything new by you? Not much, Chuck. I built a record cabinet. Well, that's something. That's a lot more than, than I did over the last few weeks. And how many records does your record cabinet hold? It's a good question. I'd figure probably about 120. Do you have that many? Yeah. Oh, sweet. You've been buying vinyl lately? Um, I try to find it in alleys and <laughs> flea markets, but no, uh, yeah, a little bit. That's the best place to find them. Like at uh, Salvation Armies yeah. or Knights of Columbus. Those are always great places. Also, uh, overseeing, supervising, whatever you want to call training, Dan, this week is Richard Norwood. Richard, how are you? I'm well, sir. How are you? <laughs> Good. I haven't seen you for a while either. Uh, Anything new about you? Oh, I watched a uh, another classic Chicago movie. And that is? Uh, uh, over the weekend. Uh, you want to take a guess? I'll, I'll give you a hint. It was shot in the mid-70s, and it's sort of the black version of American Graffiti. No idea. Cooley High. Oh, yes. I totally <laughs> forgot about that. I think that got turned into a TV series on I, CBS at one well, point. Well, I think they wanted to, and then I don't think it ever came to fruition. Or maybe it did. I don't know. Yeah. But, but yeah, it was a pretty awesome movie. You should check it out. I will. I'll definitely check it out. I haven't seen that in a very long time. So uh, for those who heard our Patreon podcast, they know my week last week was annoying, beginning with being sick, as is my want, apparently. But this time I was violently ill. After recuperating and immediately upon learning, we would have a somewhat unexpected visit from family because we figured there was no way they would visit due to the horrible driving weather. I became ill again, and for the entire three-day weekend-long visit from a member of my family, I was awake for uh, almost 20 hours, spending the rest of the time in bed or sleeping on the couch. Man, I'm getting bored with being painfully sick all the time. However, I seem to have temporarily addressed the problem with a combination of kombucha and skier, which is 
Scandinavian yogurt, and Sebastian told me that there's another German yogurt, I think, called Quark. I have no idea what that is, but now i got to look into that as well. But more important than me predictably being ill and the variety of yogurts I've never heard of before. Dan, do you know what this week's question from hell is? I do. This week's hangover cure is... Oh, oh sorry. A question from hell, sir. Oh, my bad. That's all right. The, the question from hell is buying... What are you buying the cheapest version of these days? What are you buying the cheapest version of these days? That's yeah. a very good question. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want. That can be found at thisishell.com when you click on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can email it to us. But we must have your answer by the end of this week's show when we are announcing this week's winner following Jeff Dorchin and the Moment of Truth. Dan will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell following our conversation with Elijah on White Spaces. Again, the question from hell is, what are you buying the cheapest version of these days? Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and Dan has this week's hangover cure. Yeah, you know that. Okay, (laughs) this week's hangover cure is B vitamins and zinc. The time... TimesNowNews.com, an absolutely dreadful website and source of information, ran a story with the headline, Seven Steps to Cure Your Hangover, The Morning After Misery After Getting Drunk. In it, they reported that, according to the Harvard Health, a study recently published in the Journal of Clinical Medicine evaluated the diets for 24 hours before and after excessive drinking occurred. It was a small study, and results were based on the participants saying what they ate. However... They did find that people whose food and beverage consumption contained greater amounts of zinc and B vitamins had less severe hangovers. Some of the best sources of zinc are meat, mind the calories though, shellfish, relax, that's locale, or legumes like chickpeas, lentils, beans, seeds, nuts, dairy, eggs, whole grains, etc. For vitamin B, the top food sources are meat, especially liver, seafood, poultry, eggs, dairy products, legumes, leafy greens, seeds, and fortified foods such as breakfast cereal and nutritional yeast, which makes this week's Hangover Cure B vitamins and zinc. And I think in the past we've had both B vitamins and, separately, zinc as Hangover Cures. So this time it's a combination of both. Coming up, Black Lives in White Spaces. We will also have This Week in Rotten History. Some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what are you buying the cheapest version of these days? What are you buying the cheapest version of these days? You can leave your response at our Facebook page. You can tweet it at us. You can email it to us. Your eyewitness to grief. This is hell. Black people must learn to navigate their lives in white spaces, not only for whatever social rewards they may, that they may receive for doing so, but for personal safety and security at times to protect their very lives. Now, white people may not recognize these as white spaces, but that's part of the problem. The normalization of whiteness in so many places that imposes expectations on black people when they enter them. Here to help us have a better understanding of race As it exists in white spaces, we are very honored to have on our show sociologist Elijah Anderson, author of Black in White Space, The Enduring Impact of Color in Everyday Life. Welcome to the show, Elijah. 
Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. You can follow Elijah on Twitter at Elijah Anderson. That's E-L-I-J-A Anderson. So in the case Dred Scott versus John F.A. Sanford back in 1857, the Supreme Court ruled that Scott, who had lived in a free as a free man in a free state that prohibited slavery, was not actually entitled to that freedom, that African-Americans were not, nor could they ever be citizens of the United States, and that the Missouri Compromise of 1820, which declared free all territories west of the Missouri and set the northern limit of southern slavery, that that was unconstitutional, meaning states could not constitutionally call themselves free states. This happened on March 6th, 1857, and just a little over four years later, the U.S. Civil War began. You write, after emancipation, as black people migrated to towns and cities in the North and in the South, their stigmatized place both followed and preceded them. When black people settled in their new communities, their reception was decidedly mixed. They were resisted and tolerated, and as their numbers grew relentlessly, the local white people worked to contain them at times violently in what became the black section of town. These settings where where blacks were relegated were the precursors of the black ghetto that have proliferated throughout the nation since that time, settings that symbolically reinforced what slavery established, the lowly place of black people in the public mindset. So the antebellum United States legal precedent via a Supreme Court ruling, which continued long after and well into the following century with the ghetto and today's black side of town in the current state of segregation, how much of an impact does the antebellum South still have on race relations today, Elijah. After all, there are many who want to see that South as a relic of the past and a history that happened long ago, therefore having little or nothing to do with today. So how much impact does the antebellum South still have on race relations in the United States today? Well, I mean, the big takeaway from um, Justice Taney's remark that that black people have no rights, that white people are bound to respect, is really just a, a commentary on the place of black people in, in the mindset at that time. I mean, you could not have been worse than a slave, and you had no rights, and and the white people were invested in your lowly place. I mean, this is this is a general rule. Of course, when black people were emancipated, they made their way to cities of the North and the South, the stigma, this idea of place, this lowly place, followed them in the mindset of, of, of people they they connected with, and I think that's the big that's the big point here. Um, and since that time, uh, you can imagine um, these 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 settlements uh, grew, the cities grew, and uh, these settlements were oftentimes in the lowlands and some of the worst. Uh, territory, floodplains, that kind of thing. But cities grew around these places, and these places grew, and they became, they became the ghetto, uh, the place where the black folk lived. But this positionality, I mean, uh, the ghetto outsiders, that kind of thing, um, reinforced what, what slavery established, and that was the, uh, the place of blacks vis-a-vis whites. And I argue that this became um, uh, this principle of white over black became institutionalized and passed on from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next, until today uh, they manifest themselves uh, on the south side of Chicago or North Philadelphia or in the old days Harlem, a lot of places where black people uh, thrive and um, live separate separate lives. 
But today, the ghetto is not simply a physical space, you know. But today, it's um, it's uh, become iconic, a symbol. And um, this symbol reinforces what slavery established. And black people, no matter uh, what class they are, as long as they have black skin, oftentimes um, I refer to that place. People make sense of them that way, which means that the black people start lowly in the minds of a lot of white people. and They have to sort of perform their way out of it. And many black people, middle class people, have learned <clears throat> to do just that. And, um, and they, they do, but they graduate from this uh, peculiar deficit of credibility uh, to a uh, provisional status, meaning they have something more to prove in the minds of people they join, you see. Uh, not always. I mean, there are people who, white people who are accepting, of course, but there are others who feel themselves to be threatened by the rise of black people. And they uh, oftentimes uh, uh, design more tests for them and even weaponize their prejudices. And this is the basic tension that we live with right now today, which is a, which is a kind of symbolic racism that is uh, to some extent traceable uh, to the iconic ghetto. When it comes to that symbol of the iconic ghetto, how much does that symbol reflect reality? Because when I was reading your uh, writing about uh, the iconic ghetto, I couldn't help but think of the myths of American exceptionalism and American innocence. So how much does that iconic ghetto, that symbol of the iconic ghetto, reflect reality in any way? Well, it's very, very powerful as a symbol. And this is one of the major contributions of the book to identify this, this iconic ghetto. And this iconic ghetto, that is the place where the black people live, their place in society, hovers over uh, black people and therefore over American race relations, as it were. And um, of course, um, you know, given the history and given the progress that we've made, uh, we, we now have the biggest black middle class in American history. But these black people, as long as they have black phenotype, are oftentimes confused with people who live in the hood and the ghetto. And not that that's such a bad place to live. In fact, uh, if you go to any ghetto so-called, as I wrote about in my book, Code of the Street, most of the people there are decent and trying to be, trying to be decent. <clears throat> but this isn't uh, the uh, way a lot of people perceive it, if you know what I mean. They think of the ghetto as this place of, uh, of uh, violence and crime and certainly poverty, so to speak, self-destructing all the time. And so given these stereotypes, I mean, even the black middle class, people who are educated or what have you, have to deal with this, you see. And as I say, there are many, many white people who are open and tolerant and accepting, but there are also marginal white people who feel that their own rights are being abrogated by the presence, by the inclusion of black people. And so these people are inclined sometimes in some situations to draw the color line. And so a black person who's navigating white space has to deal with uh, people and wonder who he or she is dealing with, if you know what I mean. And they know, they know there are good white people. They know there are decent white people, but they also know there are white people who hate them on sight and they have to tell which is which, if you know what I mean. And that's not easy to do. 
How much does media currently contribute to that stereotype of the iconic ghetto? How much do they exacerbate or reinforce that myth, if you will, of the iconic ghetto? Well, I mean, it's it's a very it plays a very important role, you know, uh, and it sells. It sells, you know. Uh, we have programs like The Wire, for example, you know, uh, which I think is a very engaging program. In fact, I was asked a few years ago by the Atlantic Monthly to um, be interviewed about The Wire, you know. And I told the guy, so well, I've never seen The Wire. He said, but you're Elijah Anderson. You've never seen The Wire? <laughs> and I said, no. Uh, he said, well, would you watch it? And then let me interview you. I said, sure. So I watched uh, a number of the episodes of The Wire, and I really uh, liked it in a lot of ways. I mean, it was engaging, and the stories were interesting, and, uh, you know, I, I just got, got into it. And then the guy came back about six months later and said, oh, what do you think? And I said, well, it, it, it was gripping. It was, uh, you know, I liked it. I enjoyed it. I good entertainment, but they left one thing out. He said, what's that? I said, they left out the decent people, the decent people. And in my book, Code of the Street, I talk about the decent people and the street element. These are their words, they're not my words. And um, a lot of uh, white people and even middle-class black people oftentimes don't understand or don't appreciate the decent people, the people who, uh, uh, you know, uh, manifest these values uh, that you used to find a little house in the prairie, if you know what I mean. But there are a lot of black people who do. They go to church. They treat people right. They teach their kids to treat other people with respect. I mean, there's all that going on. But this is obscured by the negative aspects of the iconic ghetto, as it were. You write that eventually the ghetto would serve as a place reminiscent of a reservation where black people would reside. This led me to wonder, Elijah, what do those who live on reservations, if you will, whether they contain indigenous or black people, have in common? Are we segregating the victims of colonialism in the United States, the people who suffered the most from the expansion of the United States? Is, is that who is being segregated? Uh, in, in one sense, yes, yes, of course. Uh, I mean, you, you can see that if you go out west and look at some of the reservations that are there today. And uh, there are parallels between um, the, the ghetto as it, as it stands in the city in, in that situation. I mean, as black people made their way to the north, I mean, as I, as I mentioned to, uh, before, as, as I mentioned before, I mean, people gravitate to these places. These places were havens, um, uh, you know, for black folk uh, who wanted to avoid racism and, uh, you know, negative treatment. And these places grew. And um, the middle classes in these places eventually began to stretch out and move to, quote-unquote, better neighborhoods, as it were. And as they did so, they were resisted. But then sometimes they made their way and they made a foothold, and the foothold grew, and the white people would flee. And the ghetto expanded. And if you look at Philadelphia today and other major cities, you see that uh, there's a kind of a history of black people moving out of the ghetto into the wider communities and the white people ultimately leaving and the ghetto expanding. So there's a whole history of black folk moving and sort of chasing white folks, if you will, until the white folks go out to the suburbs and greener space and that kind of thing. And now, uh, not to move too far ahead with her book, but 
but that's gentrification you know, that goes on. Uh, white people are moving back, and which is a very interesting phenomenon, if you will. And uh, that's uh, that's uh, happening as we speak to many so-called ghetto areas, and it's a very interesting process. You write that four successful blacks who have made their way into the upper reaches of the larger society, but who share the phenotype and skin color of those left behind. Contradictions and dilemmas of status abound, as they are at times confused with black people of the ghetto, who many white people, and especially the police, are inclined to view and treat as outcasts. To what extent can wealth protect or insulate a black person from racism? Well, I think I think it's uh, it can be protective, but there's a sense in which there's a sense in which the, the black community is a relative underclass compared to the white community. I mean, there's a sense in which these assaults on black people are not class specific, if you will. You can be of any class, and as long as you have black skin, black phenotype, uh, people look at you in a certain way until you can prove that you are worthy of respect. And this is very important. One of the uh, important um, concepts in the book, and I don't want to offend your listeners, but black people call this the end moment, the end moment, the inward moment. And this is a, uh, I argue that this is the new American color line, you see, the end moment. And the end moment is a moment of acute racialized disrespect. And uh, in the old days, the, the color line was bold. I mean, black people knew where it was, and white people knew where it was. It was like the third rail of American race relations. And people avoided it. They knew their place, so to speak. Today, with the racial incorporation process and the integration that has occurred and the progress that we've made, quite frankly, uh, that color line has been blurred, you see. And a lot of people don't know where it is. I mean, I don't even think about it. Uh, but some people do think about it, and they draw it, you see. And this gives black people uh, the end moment, the end moment. I talk about this in the book. The inward moment, as I say, is a moment of acute disrespect. And these, these can be small or these can be big. The small ones, black people just sort of deal with. I mean, there's slights, so many slights, and you can't just focus on everything that happens to you in a negative way. You go crazy as a black person in America. But the big ones are more consequential. The big ones can get you killed. The big ones can make you lose your job. The big ones can make you get a, 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 a ticket <laughs> driving your car in a white space. Uh, you know, but, and, and, and the big ones are, are deeply humiliating, you see, and they set you back and they make you think uh, about who you are. And you, 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 you just go through a trauma sometimes because in the white spaces, as black people navigate these spaces, they do find allies and friends among white people and others, you know. But when um, they don't go right and people are let down, it really does stress a person. You have to wonder where you stand with all these people you made these connections with. And that's what happens uh, when black people run into this in moment. And this is one of the most important findings of the book, you see. 
Yeah, this N-word moment. Uh, this you mentioned as the example, the situation in April 2018 with the, in Starbucks in Philadelphia where two young African-American men who grew up in an impoverished black community but were now upwardly mobile businessmen were waiting to meet a colleague at the 18th Street Starbucks. As they sat quietly without placing an order, one of the baristas began to scrutinize them. When one of the young men asked for the code to use the restroom, this seemed to be too much. The barista called the Philadelphia police, who arrived moments later to arrest arrest the young men for what amounted to sitting in Starbucks while black. You mentioned that this is a situation that's referred to as an N-word moment. They're all too common for black people operating in what they know as white space, though they don't expect them in spaces perceived to be cosmopolitan canopies like Philadelphia. You describe these cosmopolitan canopies as for the offense of straying, for engaging in ordinary behavior in public and being black at the same time. They incur the white gaze among uh, lo- along with a call to the police, and we all know what can happen then within these places where they would think that there may not, this may not be a white space because of the cosmopolitan nature of the area. So since the civil rights movement, how difficult can it be to recognize that you are in a white space and how arbitrary and unpredictable can that be? Well, well, black people know they have this uh, antenna when they move through spaces, uh, especially white spaces. The they have this uh, their antenna antenna on high alert, and uh, and they know. Um, and basically, the definition of a white space is, is simply an overwhelmingly white space where there's very very few black people. You see. But I've identified in the book not only the ordinary white space, quote unquote, but also the deep white space, <clears throat> spaces where there are just no black people. And these are places like upstate uh, uh, Wisconsin or upstate Pennsylvania, upstate New York, or the outskirts of Jackson, Mississippi, or the outskirts of Atlanta. And when a black person goes into these spaces, I mean, he or she is very alert, so to speak, about what could happen to them. And this is not peculiar to the outskirts. Sometimes within the city, you have these spaces, you see. And uh, when black people uh, navigate these spaces where you have no black people, they look for allies. They look for white people who are friendly. They look for Asians and others who might be friendly, and they especially look for black people who, are, who <laughs> they notice, and, and they, they nod. In the book, I talk about the black nod. So you can be in a deep white space. You see a black person say, hey, you know, you don't even know this person, but you, you acknowledge him, and he acknowledges you or, or you, or you, or you wink, or you nod, you know, you say, in effect, I see you, and, and, and the implication is if something happens, at least I'm a witness. If I don't help you physically, at least I'm a witness to what happened, you know, kind of thing. And so black people know these spaces, you see. And, in fact, they uh, give their children, the middle-class black people and working-class black people, too, they give their children the talk, you know. And I describe the talk in the book. They give their children the talk about the white space and the end moment, you see. And this is manifested in the relations between black people and the police sometimes, you see. And when all these black men are being killed, black women too, killed by the police with no accountability, this puts something on their minds. And they begin to fear for themselves and their children and their loved ones, but especially their children, you know, 
<clears throat> so they try to give them the talk about how to manage themselves in this white space that can become hostile at any minute, if you will. And as you were just saying, you write that since the white space can turn hostile at any moment, the implicit promise of support that blacks sense from other blacks serves as a defense. And it is part of the reason that blacks acknowledge one another in this space with a nod or informal greeting serving as a trigger that activates black solidarity. Is there a sense of black unity in white spaces? And does that same sense of black unity in white spaces exist for black people in black spaces as well? Yeah, yeah, it, it's, it's a complicated situation. And I hasten to say that black people are not a monolith, you know, uh, increasingly. And maybe this is a sign of progress. Uh, not all black people are liberals, so to speak. You've got conservative black people, you've got moderate black people, you've got liberal and radical black people. And this is kind of the maturation of the, of the black community and politically in a sense, you know, but everybody knows about the end moment. And this is one thing that unifies black people, if you will. And I talk about the, the, the race man in the book, um, the race man concept was developed by two sociologists at the university of Chicago, two black sociologists, Caton and Drake, uh, Horace Caden and Sinclair Drake, they wrote this book, Black Metropolis, about Chicago many, many years ago, 1944, it was published, and it was a classic, major classic in the field. And um, it talks about the race man, the race man. And the race man is a person who, or the race woman, these are people who looked out for the race. They always tried to put the best foot of the race forward, you know. They tell little kids to act right, to act decently, to be proper, you know, to comb your hair, to clean your fingernails, to be presentable. You know, they were that, they, and they, they spoke for the black community downtown, you know, the people, and they, they were leaders, if you will. And this is a, um, this is a, a concept that is applicable to uh, segregation or when black people are under uh, threat, so to speak, uh, palpable threat. Uh, the race man comes to the fore. But over the years, you see, with all the progress we've had, black people have joined society. They've assimilated. They've become incorporated. They've integrated. <clears throat> so today we've got the biggest black middle class in history. And until the last administration, uh, you know, black people could feel pretty good <laughs> about being in America, you know. And so in those circumstances, the race man loses his force, you see. He's not as important as he was back in the days of segregation, if you will. But now that uh, black people can feel themselves under assault, you see the emergence of Black Lives Matter, for example. You see new leaders emerging. You see a new race man, a new race woman emerging that is out to support the race. So in that sense, black people can become unified. Uh, you know, for self-protection, as it were. But when things are easygoing and things are nice and, 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 and people are getting along, the race man sort of loses his force. He emerges now and then in these times of stress and uh, discord, as it were, you know. But the unity is a function of that uh, sense of the situation, if you will. 
That's really fascinating. So you write, uh, in the minds of many Americans, the ghetto is where the black people live, symbolizing an impoverished, crime-prone, drug-infested, and violent area of the city. The history of racism in America, along with the ascription of ghetto to anonymous blacks, has burdened blacks with a negative presumption. They must disprove before they can establish mutually trusting relationships with others. What happens when the life you lead is not about proving who you are, but proving who you are not? How does that change the way you experience life? That's a great question. And um, one of the points I make in the book is that uh, black people uh, are inclined and have to navigate white space. I mean, white people typically avoid black space, but black people you know, have to navigate white space. Uh, a lot of the goodies of society are in the white space. And when they do so, uh, and they navigate the white space, they, they have to disabuse people of the idea that uh, the negative stereotypes that the people in that white space may hold about the ghetto uh, do not apply to them personally, you see. And so what they do is uh, they they disabuse people of this by by performance of respectability or credibility, if you will, uh, trying to be twice as competent as the, the white person or having to work twice as hard to get maybe half as far, you know, to show yourself as a good and decent people. And to some extent, you divest yourself of a connection with the ghetto, you see, and the black people who seem to be ghetto, you see. And so you navigate that space, you navigate that space, and you you perform respectability. um, And some black people call it a a dance, I mean, derisively, a dance, a tiresome dance that you perform in the white space. But you perform this dance before a distant and typically unsympathetic and judgmental audience distant because of the racial divide and unsympathetic or judgmental because of the threat that the black person seems to pose for the white space. And while, as I said, there are many white people who are, who understand and are are accepting, there are others who are not, you see, and these people are quick to draw the color line and even sometimes to weaponize their prejudices towards the black person. So if you, navigate the white space, you're trying to figure out who is who, you know, as you make your way. And then to get out of the way or to engage in evasive action before it's too late, you see. This is what you do in managing yourself in the white space. And again, I underscore the fact that there are white allies, you know, they always have been, who understand and who are wise to what's going on. And they do reach out to black people, you see. And this can be confusing because <laughs> black people know they're these decent white people, but there are also white folks who, who just don't like them, you know, and they, they don't know who is which sometimes. And so when they navigate these spaces, uh, they almost have to be wary. And then the good white people sometimes give them a sign, you know, that, hey, I'm on your side, you know, kind of thing. And that's important as a, as a finding of the book. Uh, black and white space. Uh, this is this is the challenge that black people run into, and you know when you 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 run into these these, these problems. I mean, uh, this this end moment is is a random thing, if you know what I mean. It's not like happening all the time. It's a random thing, and so that puts you on edge, you know. 
And one of the purposes in, re- in writing this book is uh, is to, to, I mean, I feel that if if more white people could understand what black people are up against as they navigate these white spaces, maybe, just maybe, there would be fewer in moments, if you will, you know. Uh, of course, some people weaponize their prejudices, but other people are just ignorant. And I, I like to think I can perhaps get to some of the ignorant people and edify them with what I've written in this book, you know. Well, whether it's weaponization or ignorance, you point out that marginal whites often define those color lines. Why do you think those that weaponize or those who are ignorant, why do you think that they're the ones who define color lines? Why, why do they have so so much power in defining the color lines if they are truly marginal? Well, they, they feel, well, it's complicated, but if you're white, I mean, you have a, a kind of a legitimacy um, that black people lack, even though you might be somebody who's prejudiced or whatever you see. And black folks know this. They, they, they know some of the, some of the worst races in their organizations or, or whatever, you know, and then they see the people they befriended who are white befriend these people, you know, and they, and they just say, what, you know, they can't understand. So, um, so that, so that, that goes on, you see. And so black people have to, have to navigate these, these systems and kind of be aware of who's who and understand that, uh, this, uh, space can become hostile at any moment, uh, if you will. And, um, so uh, at the same time, it's important for a black person as he navigates the workplace or uh, university or whatever it is that he's navigating, it's important to appear, at least within an organization of bureaucracy, to be uh, non-racial, um, if you will, and to be universalistic and to be, in some sense, uh, um, you know, egalitarian in your you know, workplace and all that, and uh, and yet um, black people know that um, they are peculiarly uh, segregated sometimes within these spaces, or they run into this these problems, and so they oftentimes suffer these prejudices alone. You know, they don't tell white people about what they're experiencing, if you know what I mean. Sometimes they tell black people. They tell their friends when a black person gets an in moment, for example. I mean, he tells everybody uh, around, you know. I mean, the in moment is really a, a tough thing to go through, especially a big one. It's deeply humiliating. And you have to work it out. And you talk to your wife. You talk to your husband. You talk to your friends. Uh, and the black people oftentimes say, well, 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 gee, didn't you know about this before? I mean, you know, they'll be sympathetic, you know. Um, or, you know, um, and then they, they, they talk to white friends and the white friend will say, well, you know, um, this guy's a jerk, you know, and that isn't satisfying because the black person going through this knows that there's racism involved, you know, kind of thing. And so uh, he talks about this moment a lot to everybody he can talk to. And the people, his friends, get, um, you know, they say, well, I've had enough of this to themselves, but they want to be helpful to their friend who's in pain, you know, because he's been let down so profoundly. And so they, they listen politely, but then pretty soon they get tired of hearing it, you know, because the person is wearing this out, you know. And the person who gets the end moment then talks to strangers about it, you know, on the bus, or on the train, or on the plane, you know, he tells people about his moment. 
And ultimately, he begins to heal, you see, and maybe even uh, learns to laugh about the moment, if you will. But he never forgets because it's so painful, and he doesn't want his children, he doesn't want his friends, he doesn't want you know, his loved ones to go through this, you see. And this, as I said before, this is the new car line, <clears throat> the, 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 the end moment. Du Bois said uh, way back when in his book, uh, Souls of Black Folk, he said the 20th century is going to be the problem of the color line. I'm just paraphrasing. And he was so patient with that, you know. But the color line of his day was bold. You know, in our day, it's, it's, it's much more blurred, you see. And this is one of the reasons it's so impactful when it happens, because we've made such progress, you see. <clears throat> and the progress that we've made has blurred the line. And, 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 and the good white people, they can be accepting, but the ones who are not so good can draw that color line in a minute, you see. And that, that's what gives the black person the inward moment, you see. And you want to avoid this. And this keeps black people from really embracing white people. And, you know, uh, and because it's a, it, it's a worrisome thing, you know, and it's a lot of stress to go through this, if you will. And so this is what happens uh, in our race relations. Uh, there's a sense in which the book can be described as a, as a study of the, of the new color line and symbolic racism, as it were. And the thing about symbolic racism is that anybody can, can, can be symbolically racist, including black people themselves, towards black people, you see, because uh, they, they associate uh, the black people with, with the hood. You see, and the hood is, 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 is the thing that inspires this symbolic racism. And anybody who wants to define themselves as decent and worthwhile can focus on the iconic Negro or the iconic stereotype of the ghetto and that person then gets the brunt of their uh, symbolic prejudice, as it were. So anybody can be um, prejudiced in this sense, you know. In my day, when I was in college, uh, in this, I graduated in 1969 from Bloomington, IU, in Indiana. And in those days, when we were part of the movement, it was always the white man, the white man, the white man as the racist, you see. But today, it's uh, anybody who becomes invested in this situation of the iconic ghetto, so to speak, you know, as a way to describe black people, if you, if you follow me. And so it's a, it's a peculiarly equal opportunity thing today. Uh, anybody can be symbolically racist towards black people. They can enlist into this role of iconic Negro, as it were. We are speaking with sociologist Elijah Anderson. He is author of the new book, Black and White Space, The Enduring Impact of Color in Everyday Life, an absolutely fascinating book. You can follow Elijah on Twitter at Elijah Anderson. That's E-L-I-J-A, then Anderson. You write, when black people appear in such places and do not show what may be regarded as proper deference, some white people want them out subconsciously or explicitly. These people want to assign or banish them to the iconic ghetto, to the stereotypical space in which they think all black people belong, a segregated space for second-class citizens, a lag between the rapidity of black progress and white acceptance of that progress 
is responsible for this impulse. And this was exacerbated, as you were pointing out earlier, by the previous presidential administration of Donald Trump, which emboldened white racists with its racially charged rhetoric and extremist immigration policies. What explains that lag between the rapidity of black progress and white acceptance of that progress? Why does civil rights legislation outpace civil rights acceptance by so much? Were the majority of white people just simply not ready or prepared for civil rights for increased racial equality? That's a great question. That's a great question, too. But you see, when... um, we had the civil rights movement, you know, um, that was major. That was major. It was a major status movement in a certain sense. <clears throat> and the black people uh, engaged in this movement to demonstrate and to, to say we, we need equality. We want equality. I mean, they demanded equality. And, of course, this movement culminated in riots all over the, all over the country. I mean, major cities, uh, you had urban rebellions and political action, uh, and I could name about 20 cities in which it happened after the death of Martin Luther King and, uh, <clears throat> and the, the powers that existed at the time. You know, uh, the Johnson administration in particular, they uh, facilitated this incorporation process with the passage of civil rights legislation that effectively made black people full citizens of this country and with voting rights and all of that, you know, kind of thing. And, of course, there was the incorporation process. And a major tool of it was affirmative action and set-asides. As they brought black people into the system, they felt they had to do this, you see. Now, one of the issues, a sidebar, but one of the issues was uh, the Cold War that was going on. And so many newly uh, independent countries were uh, you know, looking, at, looking for direction, whether to follow the Soviets or whether to follow the U.S., you know. And at that point in time, with all these people being, you know, beaten and, and having to campaign for the civil rights and being having dogs sick on them and all that, you know, the trouble that we had here, the racial trouble, we didn't look very good um, as uh, people to follow you know, for the peoples of Africa and Asia who were becoming newly independent, looking for direction, you see. And the powers that existed, including Johnson and Republicans even, People like Charles Percy and people like that, you know, who were, you know, moderate Republicans. I mean, they understood that to be leader of the world, they had to make America, America. They had to make it uh, into what we uh, got ideologically as students coming up an egalitarian society, an open society, a democratic society. They knew this. And one of the ways they, they uh, needed to do this was through incorporation to bring black people forward, you see. And so uh, the incorporation process after the civil rights movement was major in changing this country. And so you have um, the largest black middle class in American history now, you see. What that means is that so many black people are not living in the ghetto anymore, you see. They're living in white spaces. They work in corporations. They work in uh, universities. They work in government. They're all over the place. And plus, you have people from these developing countries who are black and brown who are here. <clears throat> and uh, there are a lot of white people who just don't, don't, don't have the news. They didn't get the news, if you know what I mean. And they feel sometimes that their own rights are being abrogated by the inclusion of black people, if you will. But uh, when, they, when they see black people, um, they sometimes assume 
that that person's place is not in the white space, but in the ghetto, if you will. That's where they belong. And so when they see these uh, people in their swimming pool, in their condo, or in Central Park birding, or if they see them on a train making too much noise or whatever it is, they call the cops. You know, uh, and these are the people who feel, again, that their own rights are being abrogated by the inclusion of black and brown people, you see. And, of course, they were given support by the last administration and became emboldened, you see. And so we had this, uh, this lag, if you will. And uh, I, I still have hope that these people can be edified and brought in and we can have peace. But I think uh, we have to have knowledge and understanding in order to get there. And, um, but at the, at the same time, we have these moments of acute disrespect that uh, these people uh, show towards the black people who are making their move, getting out of place. The end moment comes when a black person is out of his place in the minds of people looking on. And that's when he has to be sanctioned, has to be put back in his place, brought down a few notches in the minds of the people who do it, you see. So, but this is the new, this is the new color line, I think. And uh, again, as the boy said way back when, he identified it. But uh, when we're not there anymore. We're in a new, a new period, you see. So, is the post-civil rights black community less racially united and more class divided than the pre-civil rights community was? And was this? intended or an unintentional consequence of civil rights legislation? Was civil rights about segregating poor black people from the rest of black society? Well, I mean, it's, uh, it, it was, you have to appreciate the fact that it was uh, stopped, you know, this incorporation process. I mean, um, there was a lot of political activity against, um, you know, black people who were being incorporated. I mean, we had affirmative action, we had set-asides, we had uh, corporations, universities are reaching out. And of course, we have conservatives who block that, you see, and who, who listen to the group that was uh, relatively small when these efforts began, and it's grown now in political uh, power, so to speak. And so we have a lot of, uh, you know, and a lot of this action has been, been has become frustrated, so to speak, you see. But the um, it was uh, uh, akin to a second reconstruction, I mean, after the civil rights movement, when so much was being done, and there are people now who want to frustrate that. Right now we see attacks on voting rights of black people. We see uh, people being uh, harassed. We pe- see people get, getting killed by the police. I mean, all of this voter suppression and all these things are reactions, I think, to this manifestation of black inclusion, as it were, uh, manifested most powerfully, uh, I think, in the election of, uh, of President Obama, if you will, you know, which set off a lot of a lot of people. You see, so we've had frustration there, you know, and uh, when the civil rights movement ended, and Johnson was in charge. I mean, he he wanted to really make this country uh, great in the sense that you know it, it would live up to its ideals and all that, and that didn't. It means just the black middle class and uh, better opportunities for black people living in the hood, even if you know what I mean. But, you know, we, we, we stopped that. And once black people began to move into these white spaces and to be represented, a lot of people saw reason to stop it, you see. 
And so affirmative action as a policy was really, really important, you see. But it changed and, and uh, it gave way to diversity, so to speak. Uh, so many people know that affirmative action would not have survived if it had been only for black people, you see. In fact, diversity, quote-unquote, was the political price that affirmative action had to pay to exist at all, so to speak. And so that included Pacific Islanders, it included white women and other people who were underrepresented. And that's a good thing in many ways because it helps America to be America. And before the Trump administration, um, and even now we have representation of so many underrepresented minorities and we have a good society in so many ways, but it's under attack, if you will, because of its success, it seems, <laughs> you know, uh, the world, the jury is out on what's going to happen with respect to all of that. You also write, as you, as you were mentioning earlier, American society is ideologically characterized as open egalitarian and privileging of equal opportunity, but black people are deeply doubtful. Is that American society that is open, egalitarian and privileging of equal opportunity, is that a myth to perpetuate white supremacy and privilege? Is that its point? Well, I don't, I don't, uh, and that's a complicated question, you know, as I was a student, when I was in the seventh grade, I took community civics like most of us did. And my teacher was really um, uh, supportive of this ideal, this egalitarian ideal. And even told me I could become president. I mean, which uh, I just, you know, and, and he inspired a lot of my, my fellow students that, to reach for the stars, you know, kind of thing. And that's what, uh, that's what many of us, uh, many of us did. Um, and I think that um, this white supremacy idea, and certainly there are white people who have, you know, are deeply uh, invested in that idea. And if you go back to the turn of the century, there's a wonderful book by a man by the name of John Hyam, he writes about the turn of the century um, and uh, uh, American nativism, naturalism, the book is called. And he talks about the ways in which the white Anglo-Saxon Protestants were dominant. And so the Irish and the Scots-Irish and the, and the, uh, the other white people were in many ways put down, so to speak. And you can see this in books and movies like The Gangs of New York or The Peoples of Philadelphia. These are all books that tell about the complications of ethnicity and what have you. And you can kind of see um, that we live in this pluralistic society where everybody's reaching for the stars, so to speak. But it's um, oftentimes uh, underscored by, by white supremacy in that the, the white ethnic groups succeed by becoming white, so to speak. And there's a book called How the Irish Became White, which gets into this issue. But of course, uh, as we all understand, black people don't melt in the same way, and they're conspicuous and observable, and thereby made, thereby made eligible oftentimes for discrimination, so they don't participate as easily in the so-called American dream. And so this is what we have to address, if you will. So is performing respectability then performing whiteness? In a, in a sense, it, it, it is, but basically when you perform respectability, there's a reason for it. And um, the reason that uh, so many uh, people uh, uh, perform respectability is because they feel they, they have to be respectable. They have to work twice as hard to get half as far in American life. And that, this is oftentimes drummed into 
openly mobile black people. Uh, they know, they get to talk, they understand that it's not going to be a cakewalk to be mobile, as it were. And I was taught this. I was taught every day to be somebody, to to, to advance and to study hard and all this. My mother was a, one of the first tiger moms, so to speak, among black people, perhaps. Uh, but uh, she she laid that on me very strongly. And a lot of black people get that uh, message that you have to work twice as hard to get half as far in American life. So you must look out for yourself. You must uh, work and move forward. And one of the one of the ways you do that is by uh, by being decent or trying to be decent. And uh, being decent is oftentimes um, you know connected with um, this uh, issue of trying to trying to pass as respectable. And so there's a way in which, uh, quite apart from white supremacy, uh, people uh, perform respectability because it's somehow inbred in them that they have to they have to be right, they have to be correct, they have to be proper, so to speak, in order to pass inspection as, uh, as black people, as it were. I don't think people think critically about uh, the uh, notion of, uh, of, of supremacy. They think about you know, fitting in and doing what they need to do to succeed. Um, white supremacy is, more, is a more abstract uh, idea in some ways, but there's a sense in which that argument can be made, I, I think, and so um, uh, I think uh, every day a black folk is just trying to survive and trying to make their way and trying to uh, connect and advance. I think this is the way the NAACP, for example, of old, you know, uh, put it. And, of course, the, the, the race men and the race women of the black community were the result, if you will, people who encouraged black people to, to fit in and to, to move ahead and to to be up and be mobile and to be uh, decent uh, people, as it were, not simply for presenting themselves uh, uh, in, in this way as, uh, as uh, people who would you know, participate in white supremacy, but to be, uh, get ahead, as it were. You know? So I think a lot of black people just see it that way. First of all, I just want to tell you, Elijah, this is a fascinating book. We have one last question for you. We have been spe- speaking with sociologist Elijah Anderson, author of Black and White Space, The Enduring Impact of Color in Everyday Life, a new publication from the University of Chicago Books. You can follow Elijah on Twitter at Elijah Anderson. That's E-L-I-J-A Anderson. One last question for you, Elijah. And as we do with all of our guests, our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we may hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. You write racial equality is elusive for no matter how decent or talented black individuals are deemed to be, ultimately they can usually attain only a provisional status, as you were mentioning earlier in our conversation, a place that is conditioned by the after effects of the original sin of slavery centuries ago. These effects are manifest in today's segregated civil society and especially in the persistence of racial disparities in residence, education, health and uh, and employment, racial inequality. Due to that history of slavery, Elijah, can racial inequality ever truly be overcome in the United States? I think that's a, that's certainly an open question, but uh, so many black people understand that it can't, you know, that no matter what they do, no matter how hard they work, um, you know, they can graduate 
say, from this so-called deficit of credibility to a provisional status. And to, to have the provisional status means they have something more to prove whenever anybody sort of invokes that need for proof, you see. And the white space, uh, by nature, uh, is, a, is a fluid space. You, know, you have, uh, you know, a lot of uh, different kinds of people operating as white people, and there are white people who are supportive and interested and accepting, but there are also white people who are not, you see. And these white people who are not so accepting, who feel that their own rights are being abrogated by the rise of black people, are plentiful, and they make it difficult, you see. And when a black person performs respectability or performs credibility, uh, when he gets done with one audience, here comes another one and another one and another one, <clears throat> people who need the news, so to speak. And so uh, this is, um, I don't like to use the word intractable, but I think it's a very difficult situation. Um, and no matter how high you rise, I mean, the end moment, the inward moment, uh, which you introduce in this book, is, 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 is not class specific. You see, you can be, uh, lower class, you can be middle class, you can be working class, you can be upper middle class, you can be upper class, you can be the president of the United States, you know, and have an end moment, so to speak. I'm reminded of, of Congressman Joe Wilson at uh, Obama's State of the Union address way back when, and he was uh, giving a, a speech uh, uh, during the State of the Union, and all of a sudden, this, this Congressman Joe Wilson said, you liar, <laughs> you know, and everybody was taken aback, you know. And black people understand that as, as an end moment, so to speak, uh, a, a way to put Obama in his place. So, and, and I remember another incident where he was on the tarmac in Arizona, and the, I think it was the governor who shook her finger at the president. I mean, I never saw that before. And there are many other issues that Obama had to face. And here he was, the president of the United States, but he was having... The, the, the end moment, so to speak, as black people understand it. Uh, and he's the president, you see. So you, know, you can be of any um, status, you know, any class position, and get this this moment. And so this, this issue of um, navigating the space and all that, you can do it. Uh, but you graduate from this uh, deficit of credibility, and you move uh, then uh, to a provisional status, meaning that in front of this audience or that audience, you may always have something more to prove. And that's the, that's the state of uh, race relations in America, I think. And that end moment can even happen to Yale University professors as well, right? Absolutely. 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 We don't like it. We don't like to run into that. <clears throat> you know, we try to get beyond it, you know, kind of thing. Be, uh, they can be small, they can be big, you know, but uh, basically that and they're no fun when they happen. And um, so, yes, you know, anybody can have this, any black person can have this, this end moment, and they know what it is. Black people know what it is. And white people typically don't know what it is, you see. And again, one of the reasons for writing this book is to try to educate people about it. And as I said before in this talk, um, in this interview, um, if, if more white people knew about it, uh, maybe we'd have fewer of them, and that's uh, and that's uh, maybe some hope for the future. Yes, I I hope so as well too. 
again, this has been an incredible honor to have you on our show, Elijah. So, so, sociologist Elijah Anderson, author of the new book, Black in White Spaces, The Enduring Impact of Color in Everyday Life. Elijah is the Sterling Professor of Sociology and of Amer- African American Studies at Yale University. You can follow Elijah on Twitter at Elijah Anderson. That's E-L-I-J-A Anderson. And please check out his earlier books, A Place on the Corner, Streetwise, Code of the Street, and The Cosmopolitan Canopy. Thank you so much for being on our show. This really is an honor, and I'm so happy to have you on. The- and this book is just absolutely fantastic. Uh, thank you for starting off our show this week. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. All right, take care. You are listening to God's Favorite Radio Show. Prove me wrong. This is hell. If what you just heard from Elijah Anderson on Black Lives in White Spaces was in some way enlightening or deprogrammed you from a previously held belief or understanding or made you feel like you actually learned something, or to realize that, yes, this really is hell... Go to WNUR.org slash donate and donate to our home station, WNUR. WNUR 89.3 FM is Northwestern University's non-commercial student-run radio station. We have been on the air since 1950 with programming ranging from jazz to experimental rock, house music, talk radio, sports, news, and much more. WNUR has served the countercultural communities of Northwestern and Chicago for 70 years. If you go to WNUR.org, Slash donate right now. You can show your support at each of our donation levels. We would like to show our thanks to you with a special gift. So when you do go to WNUR.org slash donate, please refer to the descriptions under each tier. Those descriptions being contributor, donor, silver, gold, diamond, or platinum levels. Donate at the contributor level at 10 bucks and get a WNUR sticker. For $25, you can be a donor-level supporter and get a WNUR t-shirt and sticker. You can donate at the silver level of $50 and receive a WNUR tote bag, t-shirt, sticker. Then there's the gold level of $70, which gets you hand-picked limited-edition vinyl records, a WNUR beanie, the tote bag plus the T-shirt, and an NUR sticker. There's also the diamond level of $125, which gets you all of that stuff plus the WNUR hoodie. And finally, there's the platinum level of contribution. And with a donation of $250, you get hand-picked limited-edition vinyl records, the WNUR hoodie, the tote bag, the beanie, the T-shirt, and sticker, plus limited-edition WNUR Socks. Support completely commercial-free independent college radio now by visiting WNUR.org slash donate. Dan, please remind us what is this week's question from hell and tell us how our our listeners are answering our question from hell so far this week. This week's question from hell is what are you buying the cheapest version of these days? You can go to Facebook.com slash This Is Hell Radio and give your own answer. Yes, you can. So what are the responses we are getting so far, Dan? We've had a healthy response. Sweet. Uh, Garrett Schulke says, love. (laughs) Clarence Song says, Hulu subscription. (laughs) Okay. Oh, Clarence, my Hulu subscription friend. Any more? John T. says, smoked Bentleys. (laughs) I think is facetious. Yes, I do believe so, too. Anything else? Um, We'll do one more. Pete V says hand sanitizer. (laughs) So what are you buying the cheapest version of these days? Hand sanitizer? Doesn't seem too smart. No, it does not seem that smart. And I'm 
very concerned about ever shaking hands with Pete V again. <laughs> the person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell swag you want that is currently available at thisishell.com when you click on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at thisishellradio, or you can email it to us at chuck at thisishell.com. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, this week in Rotten History. And Dan and I will be reading it to you this week. First off, February 21st, 1918, 104 years ago this week, a Carolina parakeet named Incas was found dead in his cage at the Cincinnati Zoo. And that's this week in Rotten... No, there's more to Rotten History than that. Wait, there's more to this story, in fact. Incas was the last known individual of his species. Bigger than common budgies, kept as pets today, the Carolina parakeet was the only species of parrot native to the eastern United States. And who knew there was a parrot native to the U.S.? Before European settlement of the North American continent, the birds had ranged in enormous flocks from Florida and the Gulf of Mexico, as far west as the Mississippi River and beyond, and as far north as New York State and Ohio. And that would have been so cool to see enormous flocks of... Parakeets flying, parrots flying around. They had the most northerly habitat of any parrot in the world, which is very cool. Experts disagree on what caused the Carolina parrot's demise, but 19th century deforestation is seen as one likely factor. Ah, deforestation. Will we ever learn? Some farmers viewed the Carolina species as a pest, but others appreciated its habit of eating cockleburrs an invasive weed that was poisonous to livestock, but not to the Carolina parrot. In fact, it's believed that the birds themselves may have been poisonous since cats were known to die after catching and eating them. Heads up to Mel, the semi-feral bar cat downstairs. Even so, the birds were hunted, not so much for food as for their brilliantly colored feathers, which were valued as decorations for women's hats because decorating hats was more of a priority than keeping a unique species from going extinct. By the late 19th century, Carolina parrot had become rare. The death of the male bird named Incas in 1918 came less than a year after the death of his mate, a female named Lady Jane. Just four years earlier, Martha, the last known passenger pigeon, had died in the very same cage at the very same Cincinnati Zoo. After a few reports of questionable sightings in the wild that could not be verified, the bird was finally declared extinct in 1939, and I'm starting to wonder what the hell was going on at the Cincinnati Zoo that kept leading to the last of a rare species dying and that species then becoming extinct. I'm going to blame that god-awful Cincinnati chili because anything we can do to wipe that scourge from the planet would be fine by me. Dan, you have the next segment in this week's Rotten History. I do. On February 21st, 1965, which is 57 years ago this week, Moments before he was given an address at the Audubon Ballroom in New York City, the controversial black power activist Malcolm X was shot to death by three men in the audience, one with a sawed-off shotgun and two others with handguns. Originally a member of the Nation of Islam, Malcolm X had come into conflict, conflict with his leader, Elijah Muhammad, and had finally broken away from the organization of Afro-American unity and to embrace a more mainstream version of Islam. As he grew increasingly and publicly critical of his former mentor, Malcolm, already under surveillance by the FBI, had become target of death threats, traced back to the Nation of Islam. Three men were arrested and convicted of his murder, one of whom confessed and testified that the other two were innocent. 
Years later, all three men would be paroled, and two of these convictions would eventually be overturned after it emerged that the police and the FBI had withheld key evidence. To this day, the murder of Malcolm X remains mysterious and has given rise to speculation and conspiracy theories. But, uh, Dan, when the police and the FBI withheld key evidence, is there really a mystery to who was behind the assassination of Malcolm X? No, I think all signs point <laughs> in one direction. <laughs> one or two, at least. In Rotten History, February 23rd, 1821, 201 years ago this week, the English poet John Keats died in Rome. For two years, he had grown increasingly ill, and at the end of summer, his doctor in England had ordered him to travel south, hoping that the warm Italian climate might help him fight off the tuber tuberculosis that was ravaging his body. And I wish my doctor would prescribe for me travel to Italy. Maybe that would help my stomach. Maybe not, but who cares? I'd get a trip to Italy. Keats had just published a volume containing most of the poetry for which he's remembered today as one of the key figures of English romanticism. Since he was still a young man of 25, there was some hope that he might recover, but his arrival in Rome by sailing ship was delayed, first by a lack of wind at sea, and then by a mandatory quarantine enforced at the port of Naples due to a cholera outbreak back in England. By the time Keats reached Rome in the company of a devoted friend, he had already written his last sonnet, and the weather in sunny Italy had grown cold. His Roman doctor made things worse by bleeding him and putting him on a severe diet meant to starve the disease out of his body, so maybe I do not want to be prescribed travel to Italy after all. In growing physical pain, Keats grew delirious and had fits of anger in which he raged at the fact that he was not yet dead, so he is acting pretty much like most of us do today. But finally, he fell asleep for the last time. The house in which he died, adjacent to the famous Spanish Steps, is now a museum. And Dan, you have the last segment of this week's Rotten History. Actually, sir, I'm well, going to read it. Look, it's Richard Norwood. <laughs> On February 24th, 1989, 33 years ago this week, about 17 minutes after United Airlines Flight 811, a 747 jumbo jet bound for New Zealand, took off from Honolulu. The passengers heard a loud bang. One of the cargo doors had flown open. The force of air tore the door off the plane and it banged into the fuselage, <laughs> tearing a big gash on its side. Yikes. Now, I looked up the photos on this and it's amazing. Oh, really? So, you know, like a jumbo jet, uh, uh, like the first third of the plane is before the wing, right? Right, So right. That's, that's where this door was. Oh, no kidding. Was before the wing. Wow. And it basically... It's it's hard hard for me to gauge, but I think it was about twelve or fourteen feet wide. Holy this God. hole by the hole, and also and so the and the height was the whole um, uh, uh, like floor to ceiling of floor the to lobby. ceiling of of the main area of wow. the plane plus the plus the, you know the hole looked like it was about twenty five feet high. Wow. On the on the plane, it's crazy. Wow. So this caused an explosive decompression. Yeah. Which blew nine passengers out of the aircraft. Oh my god! A terrified flight attendant was also almost was almost blown out of out with them, but she somehow held onto the plane until passengers were able to pull her back inside the cabin. Wow! The mishap also put the emergency ox oxygen system out of commission. Now as who well needs as, oxygen when you're up there, right? Eh? As well as effectively shutting down two of the plane's four engines and damaging one one wing and the rear stabilizer. 
but the crew managed to turn around and land in Honolulu with 37 passengers physically injured and another 346 merely scarred for life psychologically. (laughs) An extensive sea search revealed no trace Uh of the the nine passengers. Uh But... Uh Chunks of flesh and bone and clothing were later found inside one of the plane's damaged engines. Oh, that's so gross. Now, I don't know. I think I think most of the people just got blown sure. out and past the thing. It, it's possible maybe one person, you know, <laughs> their fate went that way. But gross. Yes. The 747 was repaired and sold to Air Dabia. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> a, a short-lived carrier based in Gambia, of course. West Africa, and owned by a Malayan con artist <laughs> who was later convin- convicted of fraud and money money laundering after swindling about $400 million out of banks of in Dubai, New York, and Miami. <laughs> The plane flew Muslim pilgrims to Mecca until Air Dabia was shut down in 1998. So just to repeat, a plane has a mid-flight accident where people are sucked out of it with some flying into the whirring engines, but it miraculously lands, saving most of the passengers' lives. So they sell the jet to a Malian con artist who uses the same jet to shuttle Muslims to Mecca until being shut down several years later. True, but you have to you have to give it to uh, our our air quality, con, you know, control and 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 standards for building a plane that could su- survive this, this and the pilot. This is very true. And crew to you know get the plane back. Actually, to, back. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, that wouldn't be happening with the Supermax nowadays. The Boeing Supermax, that thing would just explode. Now that's rotten history, and this is hell. So, gentlemen, do we know who our upcoming guests are on the show this week yet? No, I'm afraid we're still working on yeah, that. Yeah, I kind of figured that was the case. So, on last week's Patreon podcast, did you know there are more positions to take on Ukraine or Ottawa than you are with us or against us? You can subscribe to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishellradio. Because in the mainstream media, cable TV news coverage, everything has become a binary, either pro-Republican or pro-Democrat. It's all propaganda and no politics, either liberal or conservative. And thinking outside that box seems to be beyond the imagination of alleged journalists. And it's not like it's any different on social media, where everyone from the far right to self-described leftists are choosing sides and doing their best President George W. Bush impersonation when in starting the ongoing war on terror, he insisted you be with us or against us. Sure, back then, many liberal centrist Democrats and those who would eventually be attracted to the Democratic Socialists of America and farther left movements condemned this binary thinking. But today, it seems to be thoroughly embraced. However, there are different ways of looking at Ukraine and Ottawa than the ones being crafted in the media, both establishment and social, and imposed on all of us. And you can hear my take on that by subscribing to our weekly Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. By the way, for those of you who have already heard last week's This Is Hell Patreon podcast, I mentioned the shelling of a kindergarten along the border of Ukraine and the separatist Donbass region, and how CNN immediately reported it must have been a false flag operation that Putin was using to justify an invasion of Ukraine that seemed imminent. That report was from CNN's Clarissa Ward, who was on the scene Friday morning reporting that, again reporting that she was in the Donbass region standing next to the shelled kindergarten. By Friday evening, CBS Evening News' Charlie Daggett was telling viewers that, in fact, the kindergarten was not in the Donbass, 
but was in Ukraine, which makes you wonder, how could CNN's ward be so wrong when she was standing right there next to the building, or how CBS is dagged to find what was and was not Ukraine? Did he not recognize the Donbass as a separate region, claiming the whole of the former Ukraine was still one nation? Who knows? But that's how confused the U.S. establishment media has been in their reporting on Ukraine. And when it comes to Ottawa, you do not have to support the far-right-led protest movement to condemn Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's crackdown by police. On social media, you are either with the protesters or against them, and that's it. Yet it is possible to be against both and recognize how both are misguided. We also saved, or saved, shared a uh, 20-year-old interview with uh, that's from February 16, 2002, when we spoke with award-winning Kurdish human rights advocate Kareem Yildiz. At the time of our talk, he was the executive director of the uh, Kurdish Human Rights Project, and this is before the Bush administration had successfully led us into the Iraq War, and after already starting the uh, Afghan War, which were both completely unnecessary and uh, completely avoidable wars, long before the uh, Syrian Civil War, which would also have a dramatic impact on the lives of Kurdish people. Kareem described the challenges the Kurdish people face and the basic rights they still are not given. But the only way you can hear those intervie- that interview and hear my monologue from last week on Patreon is to su- subscribe at patreon.com slash this is hell. Thanks to today's guest, sociologist Elijah Anderson, author of Black and White Space, The Enduring Impact of Color in Everyday Life. Thanks to Dan Hill and Richard Norwood for producing today. Thanks to Ronaldo Magaldi for Rotten History. This week's Hangover Cure is B vitamins and zinc. Right now, show your support for our home station, WNUR 89.3 FM Chicago Sound Experiment, by visiting wnur.org slash donate. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a sailor. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>